Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. This is a special episode of the podcast, Nizar, because we are officially one year old. Woo! Yeah, literally uh, a year ago Tuesday will mark the one year uh, anniversary of the Lebanese Politics Podcast, the very first episode. Back then, we were just like an elections podcast. We had no idea if we would continue. And then we we did. And and here we are a year later, still talking about politics and, and actually still talking about elections. Yeah, man, it's been incredible. Like, do you remember these first sessions when we were like, we had no idea. We we're just like, let's talk about the elections. And then really the, the, the interaction that we had with people listening to us and, and giving us feedback, etc. And telling us, yeah, it's really important to have a Lebanese politics podcast. It's kind of the reason why we're still going, right? I mean, yeah. Who who knew that there was interest in Lebanese politics beyond Hezbollah? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like literally, no nobody outside of Lebanon pays attention to Lebanon un- unless that is the topic for some God knows why reason. But oh no, no, there actually is. Things are interesting. Things are happening, and people are interested in it both inside and outside Lebanon, which is great. Exactly, and you know, these you know at least one thousand people who are listening to us every week. This is thank a lot you. of people. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you for giving us feedback. A lot of people have given us feedback, especially on Twitter. I would like to ask our listeners something, you know, to support our work, because uh, as everyone knows, I think by give now. Give us a million dollars, someone. Yeah, please do. No, don't give us money. That would just make us sell out. Yeah. But like <laughs> the point is we don't have any ads. We don't have any support. There's no budget. What we're doing is out of, you know, passion and interest. And therefore, the only way that we could uh, we can be promoted, the only way we can reach more people who might be interested in Lebanese politics is that our listeners do, you know, three things. Share and spread the word, give us good reviews and subscribe to our channels. This is how we appear on more people's timelines and uh, people know about us apart from just word of mouth. So our listeners, if you like what we're doing, if you appreciate this and you want to support it, do these uh, three things and uh, also please always give us feedback if you like the content if you want any other like ideas or ways of doing things that we're not thinking about or you know don't do any of that and just like keep it to yourself and just like be the smartest person in the room because you know everything and then like don't tell anybody where you learned it that's that's also cool i don't really care yeah you're a great co-host or <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we might need to work on on that get a get a united front on that one <laughs> Um, but in, but anyway, the the gods of Lebanese politics have smiled on us this week on on our one year anniversary and given us another election to talk about. <laughs> exactly. And that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the by-election, which by the time you listen to this will have already happened. Uh, we are recording this on Saturday. The election is happening Sunday and we will know the results most likely Sunday night. So by the time you're listening to this Monday morning, you'll probably know that Dima Jumeli won. Uh, <laughs> So, so, but, but we're going to sort of like break down like what's behind the elections and sort of go into Tripoli politics itself and what's important in Tripoli politics as our main issue this week. But before then, we have just a ton of news to get to. So many things happened this week. First off, last week we talked about the electricity plan. Uh, we had Jessica Albaid come in, uh, talk about that, and it, it passed. Uh, a cabinet met on Monday up in Babda Palace, and they passed the electricity plan uh, put forward by Nada Bustani, the energy minister. And, and and as we said last week, like there was, there was this question over who would actually implement things, mm-hmm. right? Who would be running the tenders process? Would it be like the, the tenders department 
or would it be uh, like the energy ministry or some sort of ministerial panel or something? Well, it turns out that uh, it's going to be the tenders department with the assistance of a tech committee from the energy ministry. Um, so sort of like a compromise, right, uh, from the two sides. The plan still needs parliamentary action to be implemented. Um, so we're going to be waiting on that as well. But we've, we've passed the first hurdle. So we'll, we'll see what happens from here. Parliament also held an oversight session this week. Uh, it was pretty tame. Like we knew the questions before they were asked. N nothing really came out of it other than um, Hariri announcing huge austerity measures uh, d during this during this session. He, literally, he said, we're working on a budget that includes, quote unquote, huge austerity measures. We don't know what those are, but supposedly there is a, a plan from uh, Finance Minister Ali Hassan Khalil to slash the budget not by the one percent, uh, one percentage point of GDP uh, per year, but rather by two point five percentage points of GDP. So maybe they're looking at going a lot quicker, which they probably need to do because ever since that one percentage point, we've talked about this before on the podcast. Ever since that commitment to slash one percentage point a year happened back in April of last year at this at the Paris Four conference, Lebanon's budget deficit has ballooned. So if you want to get it down to reasonable levels, you probably need to go more quickly. If you're if you're following the logic of we need to go on austerity, then you need to really go on austerity. And we, you know, we talked about this. We warned about this in, in previous episodes that they are going into this direction and the direction of austerity because any other reasonable thing to do to raise money, like you know, changing the tax system, for example, is completely out of question the bankers and the rich are, are not giving politicians any, you know, freedom in that concern at all. So we knew that, you know, austerity is the only way they're going to do this. And when we talk about austerity, it's important to not only think about it as reform, right? Because some of the money will be maybe cut from places where it's being wasted or where it's being spent excessively. But we know for sure that people who are making decisions, the cabinet, will keep the money where it's politically important to them, you know, in places and in ministries where uh, it has more value for cl their clientelist uh, dynamics with their supporters. So don't be very, uh, I wouldn't be very optimistic about this at all. I would think of them as austerity measures that will be harmful to a lot of people and a lot of institutions. Yeah, I, I'm going to hold my firepower on this until we actually see what they are, because yeah. I, you know, I, I, I really do feel as though they are putting all of their eggs in this basket of, you know, fixing the electricity sector first thing. And like, I have a hard time seeing where the cuts are going to be made in the actual budget. Um, so I'll, I'll wait to see what they have proposed. We, we don't know what they proposed, uh, even though there was a, another cabinet meeting this past week on Thursday, they mm. didn't discuss the budget. So, I mean, they keep saying they're going to get to it. I, I guess they'll get to it maybe this week. Who knows? Uh, We'll and, and maybe we'll actually find out, you know, what's in it at some point. We we also had a lot of uh, just foreign digni dignitaries in town this week, right? We we had uh, the Bulgarian president, we had the Greek president, uh, we had ministers from Greece and Cyprus in town, and a, a lot of the talk revolved around oil and gas, especially with the Cypriots, right? Because they border, mm. we we share a maritime border with Cyprus, and so one of the big issues is well. What happens if either Cyprus or Lebanon discovers uh, hydrocarbon reserves in in some sort of reservoir under un, undersea reservoir that is that spans the two territories? Mm -hmm. How do you share, you know, the money from this, right? And so th this is usually countries will draw up a what's called a unitization agreement beforehand. That was sort of like saying this is how we are going to share revenues 
you know, if we ever discover a shared field, supposedly Lebanon and Cyprus have been talking about this since 2013. And they continued talking about this while they were here. That's the most immediate thing that needs to happen between Lebanon and Cyprus. But also they talked about other things like things that would happen much further down the road, like, well, if Lebanon does discover natural gas, how do we export it? Well, one potential solution is to figure out something with Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And, and all of this uh, also is, has renewed importance because uh, we, met, we missed talking about this uh, in last week's show. But at the tail end of the week before last, Nada Bustani, the energy minister, announced the opening of the second licensing round for offshore uh, oil and gas exploration. And they're putting up five blocks, five out of Lebanon's 10 offshore blocks this time around. And two of these are up bordering Syria. Two of them are down bordering Israel, uh, so contested uh, waters. The deadline for bids is the end of January next year. And and also last week, or, or sorry, the week before last, we got a an update on the first round of oil and gas licensing, and and that is uh, that was won by the Total Eni Novatec uh, Consortium. They were going to be drilling in Block Four later this year, and then they will drill in uh, the non-disputed part of Block Nine, which is also on the southern border, uh, in May 2020, according to Bustani. Now, I just want to note that. All of this stuff, like we assume, like a lot of people tend to assume that, yes, there will be gas reserves that are found and Lebanon is going to become rich. But number one, there's no guarantee of that. There's nothing proven. We we have no idea what's going to be found. Number two, if something is found, it has to be economically viable to extract it. Yeah. And the Mediterranean is pretty deep uh, off of Lebanon's coast. It goes down very, very steep. It's a very steep descent. So that makes it a lot more expensive to extract natural gas. And if and then, we have anything, it's going to take a long time, right? Yeah, it's, it's going to take a long time. And, and then that's the other thing, you know, it even if we do find something, there could be other delays like political delays, bureaucratic delays, something else that's thrown into the works that means that, that, that gets things pushed even further down the road. So, I mean, we could be talking about, you know, 10 years, even 20 years from now before we actually see money from this. If there is money as well, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, also this week, we had a blow up between Peter Germanos, who is the uh, top military prosecutor in the country, and the ISF information branch. Two very powerful institutions here. Uh, Germanos uh, filed suit against members of the information branch's investigative department for supposedly rebelling against his authority, leaking information related to uh, corruption investigations, and distorting facts. So future, the future movement was not happy about this. So just to give you like sort of the, the backstory on this, generally speaking, Peter Germanos is seen to be closer to the FPM. Mm. And the information branch is seen to be close to the future movement. And we've talked about uh, the information branch previously on the podcast, uh, specifically on episode 24, where we talked about Wissam al-Hassan, who, who used to head this information branch and then later was assassinated. And uh, that episode, episode 24, marked as uh, the anniversary of his assassination. And we talked then how this information branch has been closely associated with the future movement and was kind of created by by the, um, you know, Hariri camp. Yeah, and, and Hassan is just this, like, hugely revered figure after his assassination, just massively revered within the future movement and, and amongst mm-hmm. uh, Sunnis in particular. Yeah. That being said, so the, this political backdrop being said, I, I don't want to like say that this is the reason for any of the blow up because this is, this is sort of the 
problem with Lebanese politics. Everybody sort of knows this backstory. Oh, this person's associated with them and they're associated with them. So if there's some problem between the two, it can't possibly be because it's merited. It's always because of politics. Like, this is always people's assumption. It's always due to politics. But we don't really know that. Like, uh, Peter Germanos could have very good reasons, and this this could be totally apolitical. The Mm. problem is you're dealing with such a highly politicized environment that it's really, really hard to cut through that and say, no, 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 this is really just a technical uh, decision. Yeah, and also any technical decision, any dispute will immediately witness political interference, right? It's not only how we analyze it, it's also what happens, which is that anytime there is, you know, conflict between these institutions, people who are actually pushing and negotiating, etc., are not, you know, the ofi- how the official process should be, but rather through the political channels. Right, right, right. And, and, and you can see in this case, what happened, who came out very much against this, it was the future movement. Like the, the parliamentary bloc uh, in their meeting this week, they came out afterwards and said, you know, that there had been these suspicious campaigns targeting various Sunni figures like the ISF head, Ahmad Osman, the state prosecutor, Samir Hamoud, and all this stuff, which was seen as sort of like a rejoinder to the Germanos thing. You also had Interior Minister Rael Hassan come to their defense. And so all of this just, it looks political, even if it's not. Yeah. Um, and, and finally, the other really big story of the week revolved around sanctions and terrorist designations and uh, Hassan Nasrallah. So the U.S. named the, the IRGC, the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, a foreign terrorist organization. Nasrallah came out and gave a speech after that, um, you know, condemning the U.S. Um, and, and saying like sort of like I, I guess you'd call it like veiled threats uh, of like, you know, don't don't mistake our patience for an inability to respond. Also calling on people, you know, don't side with the U.S. You, 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 you should not be siding with the U.S. You should be siding with the people who are actually aligned with your interests, you mm-hmm. know, which is clearly not the U.S. That, that was his his message. So, like I said, it came after the State Department designation, uh, but before uh, a Treasury Department designation of a money exchange dealer, uh, Qasem Shams. And, and this guy who is sanctioned, you know, seems to be sort of like a small fish. But the idea is that the Americans seem to be pushing forward on this and more shoes are going to drop. They're going to be sanctioning more people mm-hmm. and going after Hezbollah in this way in the future, it, up to and including perhaps sanctioning Rumor has it, Nabi Berri himself. There was reporting in the in the National in the UAE about a week ago about the U.S. considering sanctions of people close to Berri, like his inner, his inner circle mm-hmm. and close, you know, top allies and stuff. However, there are a lot of Lebanese politicians who are in Washington this this past week uh, on various delegations, including one delegation that included uh, Yassine Jabber, who is a member of the Amal movement's uh, parliamentary bloc, not a member of Amal, but the parliamentary bloc, as well as uh, Ibrahim Kanaan, another, you know, sort of like, these are two heavyweights yeah. in parliament. Ibrahim Kanaan is high a high-ranking, MPs. high-ranking member of the FPM. And what's come out from people close to that delegation, and I believe other delegations that are currently, or, or that were in uh, Washington this week, is that, oh no, this, this talk is overblown. They're not looking at sanctioning you know, the U.S. is not interested in rocking the boat too much in Lebanon and upsetting mm. stability, that sort of a thing. That's what is coming out of these meetings, supposedly. Of course, we don't we don't really know if this is happy talk or what. Certainly, the U.S. is going to continue sanctioning people. The question is, how how high are they going to, you know, escalate this? 
Yeah, I mean, we went in depth into Pompeo's visit in one of the previous episodes, and we did another episode on the Amal movement. So, so people who are interested in like understanding this, like this dynamic that's happening now with the rumors about sanctions on Amal, can listen to these two episodes because you know, as we said earlier, Amal is the political party, and Berry himself is a political figure that gives Hezbollah a lot of political legitimacy uh, and credibility, and is kind of the internationally accepted point of connection with Hezbollah. Uh, so he sits with everyone, with the Americans, with the French, etc. But they don't sit with Hezbollah, so he's kind of the middleman. Um, and he's a very, very high-profile uh, speaker. So attacking Birri's circle or sanctioning Birri's circle would be very, very significant in terms of an escalation of U.S. politics in Lebanon. And maybe this delegation and other advice should have the impact of, you know, taming the, the impulsiveness of the U.S. administration in this sense, because if they lose Birri, they lose an important asset. They cannot uh, ma- uh, exclude or um, marginalize all of the Shiite political uh, political figures, right? If you don't have any connection with Hezbollah and you're waging this huge attack on Hezbollah and also you lose the only person who's close to Hezbollah that talks to you, I don't know how much of a positive or a smart strategy that is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's forget about stuff happening outside. Let's get back to the what's happening in Lebanon. Specifically, what's happening... Sunday, Sunday, Sunday in Tripoli. It's the by-election. Elections are happening again. Oh, my God. This is sort of weird because we're talking about this before it happens because we're recording on Saturday, like we said. But you're going to be listening to this after it happens. So you know more than us already about all of this. But like we think we know what's going to happen. So we're just going to go ahead and go for it. And I, I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll just end up looking like assholes uh if we're wrong but (laughs) like this is not a very hard call to make yeah but i mean we'll also give some context that you would be useful for people listening to um, i mean reading the news about the election to understand how it happened and why etc and if there there are major surprises at least this episode can explain who's who in tripoli and how you know to make sense of this yeah exactly exactly so first off what is happening and why Election Sunday for the fifth Sunni seat in in Tripoli. And all of this is happening is because back last year in the 2018 election, this was the closest race across all the country. Mm -hmm. If there had been a 25 vote shift, according to the official results, then we we would have had a different person in office. uh, Adima Jameli won from the future movement. However, if 25 votes had moved over to uh, Faisal Karami's list, then we would have someone named Taha Naji as mm-hmm. an MP instead of Dima Jumeli. Now, Taha Naji was not happy about the result, and he contested it. He filed an appeal at the Constitutional Council, and this was the one appeal throughout all of the country. I think there were something like 17 appeals. This is the only one that the Constitutional Council didn't dismiss, and they, they actually agreed and they said, oh, no, we did sort of a recount. Their recount, by the way, was insane because they threw out a ballot box that just like very weirdly in just like astronomical odds, it seems, shrunk that razor thin 25 vote margin to a margin of one vote. And they said Tahanaji should have won by one, by one vote. vote. <laughs> but instead of saying okay, well, Dimitri is no longer the rightful uh, winner. It is Tahanaji. He is now an MP. They said, no, we're going to call a new election. And Future was furious at, at this. You know, one of their MPs was unseated. They have to go through this whole election to, you know, try to get her back into office. 
they were very, very unhappy. And they, you know, claimed that there was political interference and everything. Weirdly, though, the Karami camp and the Tahanashi camp, they were also furious about this because from their view, they were like, oh, well, first off, you said we won. So we should have won. Yeah. Why call what what is the basis for calling another election when you said that we won? And why did they say that? What was you know, what was the reason behind that? Well, in a by-election, you don't have that same that same proportional vote system, right? You can't. You it is a first past the post system, it is a majoritarian system by by definition. It's only, you know, one seat that you're going for. So it's a head-on thing. And they knew that in just a head-on first past the post vote against the future movement, it would be very difficult for them to win. Yeah, impossible, because it's not only about the future and Karami, right? Because it's also about the other people who we will be talking about uh, in a bit, who sided with Harira on this one and said they will, so they will support Jamali. Most importantly, uh, former Prime Minister Najib Mi'ati and Ashraf Rifi. Exactly, exactly. And, and so Faisal Karami and Tahanaji decided they were going to boycott the election, said we're not going to contest it. And then Dima Jameli got all of these endorsements. Uh, she was obviously endorsed by Hariri but then also endorsed by Najim Ati, the former uh, prime minister, Mohammed Safadi, a former minister, and Ashraf Rifi, also a former minister. Basically, all of the powers in Tripoli sort of closed ranks around Jameli, with the exception of Karami, and, and endorsed her. Mm. So let's get into these endorsements a little bit and what they mean and who they're coming from. Yeah, so let's go over like the main people um, who dominate Tripoli politics today. And um, the first political party that, uh, you know, received the biggest number of votes in the elections of 2018 and is supporting candidate Dima Jamali is the Future Movement. The Future Movement doesn't have like a major Zaim in the area, a major political leader. Uh, I mean, it's Zaim is Saad Hariri. Exactly. By definition. And the Future Movement rose to prominence across uh, like Sunni communities in different areas with the rise of Rafi al-Hariri, who, uh, you know, dominated Sunni politics for a period of time in Lebanon after the civil war. So the credibility and the legitimacy of the future movement stems from the Hariri house, the Hariri political house, political family, and obviously the clientelist networks of the Hariri family. But there are no major leaders affiliated with Hariri in Tripoli, uh, because Hariri himself is not from Tripoli, he's from Saida, and he runs in Beirut. This is as opposed to all other figures that we will be talking about in a, in a second. But what, ha- what the future movement represents is like a political umbrella, uh, a political movement that uh, is allied with small figures in the area and gets its local credibility from them and gives them national credibility and access to the central government. One of these people, one of these local figures is Mohammed Kabbara, who is not really, you know, part of a political project per se. He's not a prominent person politically or he doesn't you know claim to to have this sophisticated political rhetoric or anything he's a very local kind of figure and and he's he's not a card carrying member of the future movement he's not actually in the future movement he's not he has his support in Tripoli so his deal is basically give me political cover give me some ministerial positions sometimes he was uh, most recently Minister of Labour and this deal is basically you know give me access to this kind of thing this is central government give me political cover and I'll give you just less than 10,000 votes which is what happened in the last elections and m- many other people are in a similar deal but other people are more affiliated with the future movement like Samir al-Jusser who is you know a future movement figure more than an independent figure but also has wide support locally so the second biggest camp uh, is that of Najim Mi'ati, a two-time prime minister who was a prime minister in 2005, 
and in 2011-2013. Basically, Najib Mi'ati is kind of the Hariri of Tripoli. He is a huge businessman uh, with a lot of money. Uh, now $2.5 billion is his net worth. He made this money through the telecom sector mostly, and he has, hu- he has huge charity networks uh, in Tripoli, reaching a lot of people, which is why he has a very loyal support base there. And in politics, he's been appointed prime minister specifically because he has very good connection with the Syrian regime, uh, with the Assad family. And at the same time, he's kind of positioned himself as a consensus uh, prime minister. So Right, he's tried to carve out like the centrist role, like, oh, no, I'm not really with Bashar al-Assad. I'm in the middle of everyone, like I'm, I'm equal distance from both camps. That's what he styles himself as. Exactly. But it's important to note here that his premiership, his second premiership in 2011, was very politically sensitive because he came as kind of the March 8 prime minister. When when Saad Hariri's cabinet was overthrown by mass designation of March 8 uh, ministers, so uh, Hezbollah and March 8 forces supported Mi'ati to be prime minister. And obviously he said that he was a consensus candidate, but back then he still had more of a March 8 character. But more recently, as you're saying, he's been characterizing himself and and positioning himself as someone who is a very important uh, figure that is in the center and doesn't have to be in any of the extremes. He can have very close relationship with the Syrians and be relatively close with the future movement while maintaining his support base and his loyal uh, followers, basically because his loyal following is dependent on his activities in his hometown, in Tripoli, with his own people, direct connection, not some form of big political umbrella movement like the future movement, which is much more fragile. So Mi'ati is now the most important maybe individual figure in Tripoli, but it's important to always remember that he does not come from a political dynasty. He, he does not you know, belong to a family of long political heritage, which is not the case for Karami. The second you know, major figure in Tripoli is the Karami family. The Faisal Karami now, but it's mostly the Karami family, right? There's a sequence of Karami prime ministers that we've had for the last hundred and, you know, something years uh, it started with Abdul Hadi Hamid Karami huge in the pre-independence figure actually he he was alive from before the independence till afterwards and he was prime minister as well very very important Sunni figure back then and then we had Rashid Karami who was a very important figure before the civil war and in the civil war uh, he's, he's Lebanon's longest serving prime minister he 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 was appointed prime minister a total of 10 times insane during really? his lifetime yeah w- way more than anybody else and he, and he served a longer time if you add all of that up it's like 12.6 years he was in power which is longer than anybody else longer than Rafiq Hariri so he's like a sunni political titan and in uh, 1987 he was assassinated and uh, Samir Jaja actually the head of the Lebanese forces was accused of of being the, behind the assassination and then we have Omar Karami Rashid Karami's brother who was not, you know, a huge figure of any sense. He was just uh, the continuation of the Karami family. Exactly. Which is why he was prime minister. So he was prime minister twice, and both times his government was overthrown by popular protest and by crisis. Uh, Once in 1992 with the Lira crisis, and once once after the assassination of Rafi Hariri, when he was uh, heading the government during the time that the assassination happened. So this is, the Omar Karami is not, you know, perceived as a very successful political figure. And then we have Faisal, his son, who is 47 years old, known mostly to be uh, the youth and sports minister for a while, for three years, from 2011 to 2014. And uh, now he's an MP because he won in the 2018 elections. Yeah, so Faisal is considered sort of like the heir of this long political dynasty. And even though that dynasty has definitely shrunk 
uh, is no longer nearly as powerful as it was back in the days of Rashid or Abdul Hamid. It, it still has this, you know, legacy that's important, that counts for something. And it's one of the very few families that remain significant in politics. Then you have another major figure, Muhammad um, Safadi, who was much less spoken about, much less covered, because he hasn't been prime minister. Uh, he's not from maybe from the size of Miqati and Hariri, uh, but he has some major significance in Tripoli. Uh, R- rumor has it he wants to be prime minister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he's a bit too old now. He's 75, and he's kind of stepped back from the the front uh, of, of politics. Anyway, uh, Safadi is part of the post-war financial elite. Yeah, he's much more in the vein of Rafiq Hariri and Najib Mi'ati, went outside, made a whole bunch of money, and then came back to Lebanon to start a political career. So we, we've got sort of like three new Sunnis on the scene, you you can say, that we've spoken about so far, and then Karami, like the old, the old family. Exactly. Three people representing the bourgeoisie, basically, after the civil war, coming with all their money. And Safadi, same as Hariri, came from Saudi Arabia. He was working in Saudi Arabia and building his wealth in the Gulf. And then obviously came back here, created the Safadi Foundation, the charity foundation that also gives him a lot of uh, support. And he was just, he didn't, he wasn't prime minister, he was minister uh, three times, uh, most importantly for finance and the economy. And his continuity now, you know, we said he's 75 years old and we're, we're kind of witnessing some kind of transfer of political representation from himself as a person to his wife, uh, Violet Khairallah Safadi, who is a current minister of state for the empowerment of women or youth or whatever that name is. But we'll see now how the continuity of the Safadi kind of political family will be uh, if, if there's going to be a legacy, you know, a, a political family to go on in the future. Okay, so we, we've got three from the new bourgeoisie. Uh, interestingly enough, these three all endorse Dima Jumeli. And then one old family, Karami, who's against Jumeli. But then there's a, like this other character in the mix who is not like any of these other guys. He didn't go outside and make a lot of money. He doesn't come from this like long storied, you know, blue blood family. And that's Ashraf Rifi. He also endorsed Dima Jumeli, uh, but, but his story is very, very different. He was the head of the ISF, uh, and then he was a justice minister. He was associated with the future movement, an ally of Hariri, until breaking with him and, and turning around and like being very, uh, a very strident critic of Hariri for basically not standing up to Hezbollah enough. Uh, mm-hmm. Rivi has taken a very, very harsh stance against Hezbollah, against Iran, against Syria, and only with the endorsement of Dima Jumeli a, a, a couple of weeks ago, did Rifi come back into the Hariri camp? Mm-hmm. Uh, before then, he was sort of like an outcast, outsider. And I, I want to talk about a little bit about why that's important. Because to understand this rift between, you know, Rifi and Hariri and why it's a big deal that it's now patched over, you have to go back a couple of years to the municipal elections in 2016. Mm-hmm. Now, in those elections, basically all of the powers that be in Tripoli got together, all the big names that we just discussed, minus Rifi, got together and decided, okay, this is going to be the 24 members of the next city council. City council is 24 members in Tripoli. This is going to be it. And so they they, they divvied it up. You know, Hariri got his guys, Makati got his guys, Safadi got his guys, Karami got his guys, and they put it out as a single list. Well, the people of Tripoli threw a huge curveball at the establishment. Yeah. Because Ashraf Rifi had his own list outside of that, and they elected Ashraf Rifi's list. 
like in, in, in the end tally, Ashraf Rifi got like 16 out of 24 seats. Obviously, like lots of rumors flying around about this. There always are in elections. But, you know, supposedly a lot of people seem to think that he should have gotten a lot more seats, like maybe 20 seats, something like that mm-hmm. out of 24. Basically, it, 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 was, it was a huge, it was a stunning upset for all of these political powers that be. And this really catapulted Reefy into like, oh no, he's a major player in Tripoli now. He, he was able to slay all, all of these massive, you know, the new money and the old money. And where does Reefy come from? He comes from a security background. That's yeah. it. And and it was a huge wake-up call to all of these people, to, you know, to, to Ati, to Safadi, to, to Karami, to Hariri. All of these people realized that, oh, oh no, we, we have not been, you know, paying enough attention to this. Uh, and this is getting this has gotten way out of hand, and they so they took it kind of for granted. And then people that, that's what people seem to think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's important just to make a very quick note here that you know one of the reasons why um, Rifi's list won was that it wasn't really Rifi's list in terms of like he chose a couple of people that are people who are loyal to him and he put them there. It was framed as a civil society list. People there were talking about. About this list as a civil society one of of experts and technocrats etc. and community uh, community uh, activists etc. So it was closer to the people. It was a protest vote, and we should remember it came one year after a huge protest movement, the biggest since probably the end of the civil war in 2015 after the garbage crisis. So there was a huge momentum uh, for this uh, in Beirut. We had 40 percent of the votes going to Beirut Medinati. This was kind of the situation in the country back then. So this, all of this momentum uh, politically was kind of converged into giving Rifi more, uh, a more serious position. Exactly. And, and here, I think it's also very important to note just the socioeconomic context in Tripoli. Tripoli is Lebanon's second city, but it is, you know, it, it's hard to find reliable statistics on it, but unemployment is much higher, it, it appears, than in uh, a lot of other parts of the country, especially in Beirut. It doesn't get the funds uh, that certainly, at, at least from a Tripolitan perspective, they see politicians going to Beirut and not bringing back funds, not bringing in any jobs, not actually doing anything to stimulate mm-hmm. the economy. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people who are out of work, unemployed, underemployed, and and, and, and just the, the level of, of you know poverty is just... The so highest. staggering yeah. in, in the second city in Lebanon's fucking second city. Yeah, the level you know, of development there is devastating. It's it's horrible. Right, right, and and so this also played into this just absolute popular frustration that came out in the 2016 vote, and also made you know they made the all the Zouma, all, all of these Mikatis and Hariris and all these people wake up and say, oh no no, we we really need to be careful about this and and do a bit more for the city. I think. And they did a good job, right? Because 2018, the story was very different. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it wasn't just that they did this, but um, if you talk to Rifi's people, they will complain about, well, as soon as they got into office, there was just this wall of obstruction from all state institutions that are controlled, you know, by by these larger political factions from the Mahafaza to the Council for Development and Reconstruction to uh, other state organs and entities that basically meant that the new city council in Tripoli couldn't get anything done. And they didn't. They, they, were, they were just unable to put mm-hmm. anything together. Now, I don't know how much of that is because of outside obstruction, like the Arifi camp claims, and how much of that is because, well, 
they couldn't really get their act together. It seemed, uh, it, it seemed as though it was a lot of newcomers to the council. They didn't really know how to work together and mm. like really work with the state institutions. So probably the truth is somewhere in the middle there. But the result was that th- this was sort of like the downfall of Reefy, right? He wasn't actually able to do a whole lot in Tripoli. And mm-hmm. eventually he sort of washed his hands of it and said like, okay, this isn't, you know, my, my thing anymore. And, and that culminated as well in the 2018 election, right? And so finally, all of the Zouama came back for the national election. They treated Tripoli. Uh, it was very important to them for a lot of reasons that they win, that they not allow any, any sort of protest vote to happen, that they make sure that they get their electoral machines, you know, well-oiled and, you know, well-funded and all of this stuff. And they did that and they shut Reefy out. He didn't win a single seat. So it was like from this high in 2016 to just like the empire strikes back, man. And, exactly. Yeah. Kind of the political powerhouses imposed themselves again. They they made it clear who controls Tripoli's politics. And uh, on top was, uh, you know, the future movement who won 33%, a third of the vote. And um, and by the way, when we were giving these numbers, we should note this is this, these are the numbers for Tripoli, Minya and Doni, like the larger district. Yeah. And the, the 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 vote the vote on Sunday will just be in Tripoli, Tripoli Mina Kalamun. Yeah, and and but yeah, Hariri got the like the future movement got the biggest number of votes, and it was kind of distributed among many people. So there weren't one person who got most of the votes. It was five people who got between six thousand and ten thousand votes, while the others were much less worse performing, like two thousand and less. And two thousand was the number that uh, Dima Jamali got, the current candidate. And the second biggest was Miqati's list, which won 28% of the vote and established Miqati as someone who can run alone and still perform almost better than anyone. Like it was a big victory for Miqati. They were celebrating with a lot of passion. And also it established Miqati as a person as the most popular politician in Tripoli because he got 21,000 preferential votes from Tripoli because only, you know, people in the district of Tripoli can vote for a, a, a candidate, give him a preferential vote there. So more than anybody else. Yeah, fourteen percent of total votes. It's it's insane. He got a lot of votes, and Karami's list was the third uh, most successful one with just under twenty percent of the votes. But not only thanks to Karami, which we should we should remember here, Karami is important, but he's not that powerful. Uh, his number of votes it was seven thousand, which is you know very mediocre. Like it's comparable. It's equal actually to what Talal Islam got in in Alay in in, uh, in Alay Shuf district. Oof. So it's, you know, these politi- people coming from political feudalists or like political families, old political families, still um, trying to be relevant, but their actual popularity is, is not that significant. But he had another candidate who was Jihad Samad, who is very, very popular. He got 11,000 votes in, in Indonesia. And, and just a very quick note on this, Safadi did not run his electoral machine supported the future movement. So that 33%, that third of the vote, that includes Safadi. Yeah. And so now against this backdrop, we have this by-election. The question to ask, is it really another chance for people to, you know, practice this protest vote and overthrow these uh, powers who are dominating politics? Yeah. So like, let's look at the most likely candidates to draw votes. Uh, First off, we've got a former MP, Misbah al-Ahdeb. He, he was an MP uh, from, I think, 96 to 2009. He was an ally of Rafiq uh, and then Saad Hariri. But he's like he's been out of it. He doesn't seem to attract the numbers. He ran in the 2018 election uh, and he didn't get that many votes. He didn't no. win nearly enough. Uh, he didn't even get the 
top number of votes on his own ticket because he allied with the Jamaat Islamiyah. He also admits he's not going to win. He, yeah. he told me this <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I'm not mm. going to win. This is more about making a political point. Yeah, being uh, there. Mm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And actually, a candidate who got more than Masbah al-Ahdab, who's also running this time, is Yahya Mawlud. He's running on um, an independent list, an opposition. He's calling himself an opposition candidate against the political establishment. And Mawlud was a candidate in, Kulu, in the Kulu Nawatani list in 2018. And he got 909 votes, one vote more than Masbah al-Ahdab, which is a big number of votes for an independent candidate. But still, his chances are very limited unless there's some kind of popular uh, wave of protest votes that would um, be in his interest. Which, though, it, it seems as though civil society movements just are not strong enough or not organized enough or not established enough to really mobilize enough of the vote in Tripoli, if history is any indication. And the other candidate that we want to mention, by the way, there's like eight candidates that are going to be on the ballot, but like one of them is already withdrawn and like the other one's People just don't really know who they are. They, they're, they're not huge names. But the other one that is definitely is worth mentioning is Nizar Zakka, who is currently imprisoned in Iran. And this has been a major ongoing issue, uh, especially, you know, like his family accusing the Lebanese government of not doing enough to get him back. And so he strikes me as somebody who theoretically, like on paper, could be like a very good protest vote. You're not voting for somebody who's going to enter parliament and from parliament be actively criticizing Hariri or anything, for instance. Yeah. No, you're you're saying like, no, I'm I'm with Yuri, I'm also against Iran, but in in this sort of like protesty way. However, it doesn't seem as though like this is gonna happen. My colleague Sahar Huri was on the ground on Friday up in Tripoli, you know, talking to voters, talking to campaigns. I, I asked her about this and she said, you know, her impression is that like the the, the people of Tripoli say, well, yeah, but Zaka's not here, so like, why vote for like it? It doesn't it doesn't seem mm -hmm. to be resonating uh, as as him as a potential protest vote. So that seems to me to be unlikely, even if it seems okay on paper. So overall, we have um, apart from the establishment candidate, which is Dima Jamali, we have these three candidates. None of them has real chances, uh, except if there is some surprise. Uh, we have to mention that there were a, th a couple of thousand of blank votes in the election, and a lot of people were voting for these small lists. All of these lists now don't don't uh, exist, so people have a very limited, very narrow choice. So maybe more people will be uh, voting with this protest vote by I don't I don't know how. Maybe a blank vote, maybe for one of these candidates. We don't know sure, for sure. We can't predict this uh, accurately, uh, but we know that the question, the big question, is one of turnout. Right, and so like the one of the reasons for like, yes, there is this small amount of uncertainty is precisely because we don't know how low the turnout's going to be. We know yeah. it, it is it is going to be low. Back in 2018, it was 36% turnout in the larger Trablus Minye Donie district. Mm -hmm. This time around, people are talking about it being much lower. I've heard numbers banded about like as low as 10% turnout, which Roughly speaking, there's about, let, let's say, 300,000 registered voters. So there could be as few as like 30,000 people coming out. And if that happens, that means each one of those votes counts for more, right? And so you can upset things with a smaller number of votes. So there is this yeah. small uncertainty there. That being said, though, like there's this larger question that gets raised by this, right? Like it, assuming that it that there are no upsets, assuming that Jumeli does just coast to victory here, there's the larger question of like, okay, well, you've got Karami and March 8th 
boycotting this and you've got a bunch of other people just not interested enough to bother to turn out because they know there's no contest. Well, what does that mean for Dimitri's electoral legitimacy? And what does that mean, I, I think, for all of her backers' legitimacy? She's being backed by everyone, everyone that we talked about yeah. today, other than Karami. She's being backed by. So what does it mean if they can't turn out the vote? Yeah, it's really not about who wins now, as you're saying. It's about how many people turn out. And exactly for the reason you're saying it, Ahmad Hariri, the general secretary of, of uh, the future movement, has been in Tripoli mobilizing people quite, you know, with a lot of excitement in the last two year, two days, or at least he, last he's been, few he's days. been up there uh, several times. Uh, he goes up there quite quite a bit, uh, to his credit. Uh, Hariri went up there on Friday, it, it, and also in this push to like, no, get people out to the polls. We need to get people out to the polls. But funnily, he was asked when he was up there, you know, like, sir, why have you not been to Tripoli since the 2018 election? Mm -hmm. And he hasn't. So, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. He, I mean, Hariri is always in, a, in a, an embarrassing situation when he wants, you know, to justify his, uh, his political actions to Tripoli because, as you're saying, it's a neglected city. And people, uh, this is the main way in which people are politicized. Tripoli is not given the enough, enough importance and enough funds and enough development from the central government. And Hariri is the central government person. Right. And he's telling them, please vote for this candidate specifically, which is who is supported by all of these rich people in the city. So you must be doing some good job to deserve it. And especially with money coming in uh, from Sadr, if they come in, how much of that money will go to, uh, to Tripoli? Very, very little. According to calculations from Yahya Mawlud's campaign, which I was listening to a couple of days ago, they were saying only $300 million will go to Tripoli from the total amount that was planned. Uh, and and this I think, would be I think Hariri claimed it would be twenty percent uh, on his visit. Yeah, there. so there are yeah. these very contradicting numbers of, uh, uh, in terms of how much money will actually go into into investment that would create jobs in in Tripoli. Um, so there are other kind of cards that they were trying to play, and I was a bit disgusted to be honest by Ahmed Hariri's like sectarian kind of mobilization. I don't understand what he's doing. There is no sectarian aspect to this um, to this election because the March 8th camp is not even running, is not even supporting anyone. So there's no Hezbollah candidate. And still he was talking about, you know, uh, Tripoli being the Sunni's capital and all of these things, trying to mobilize people as if this is a major contest and, and no one takes it seriously. This by election is kind of a joke um, politically and legally. We don't understand why it had to happen in the first place. It's It was consist contested at the point where the Constitutional Council decided to hold it and both sides um, have kind of criticized the decision in one way or another. And also, I was in Tripoli a couple of weeks ago and no one is in election mode. I was talking to friends there and they're saying no one takes it seriously. Except for the electoral machines. They are doing their damnedest right now to get people out. And so I, I think when you are listening to this on Monday or this week and you know who won, Jumeili, almost certainly. The the real question, like that that that's that's not the answer you're you're looking for. That's not going to tell you anything. What is going to tell you something is how many people made it out to the polls. That's what to look for. Exactly. All right. Well, I, I hope that this uh this discussion was pretty informative uh, about not just the election but Tripoli politics in general. It's a fascinating place. It gets 
far less attention than it deserves, even within Lebanon, but certainly outside of Lebanon as well. So I, and I, we didn't talk a lot of things, right? A lot of things we didn't touch on in this episode that, was, that are also interesting. The history of Tripoli and as a political space and exactly. uh, everything apart from the figures that we're talking about, we didn't touch on. We can go much deeper in the socioeconomic situation and how dramatic the development indicators are in that city and the implications of that for politics. But we can leave that to future episodes, maybe. At least now we can, you know, people who, under- who, who are listening to, um, to the news tomorrow, on, on Monday actually, and, uh, and just trying to understand, to make sense of what happened. Here's some background, yeah. All right, and I guess we'll, we'll leave it there. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.